Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. This episode is sponsored by Audible. One of the greatest constraints on human civilization has been the need to travel outward to new horizons, to find fertile land to gather and farm from. What if the solution is to go upward, not outward? So today we're taking a look at vertical farming, asking what it is and what the opportunities and challenges are in developing it, and if it can ever become practical. Now discussion of vertical farming almost always involves discussion of other farming techniques, typically greenhouses, soilless farming, hydroponics, aquaponics, aeroponics, and other controlled environment agriculture, and so we will discuss those today briefly too. But vertical farming itself is the concept of growing farms in vertical stacks, multiple levels, or of just taking far more advantage of height in farm layout. As an example, in a future of low gravity space farming, up and down aren't much harder to work with than left and right or forward and back. Whereas you usually want to optimize maximum internal volume per external surface area on space habitats, keeping them compact, so you would be a lot more likely to see found volumes rather than found areas, so to speak. Now the biggest hurdle of vertical farming is cost. It's outrageously expensive to build up or even to build at all, compared to raw, cleared land, mostly we'll get into current exceptions today and expected future ones. This is also why vertical farming is almost always discussed in tandem with controlled environment agriculture, because while something like a greenhouse is usually hugely more agriculturally productive than an equal area of open land, the cost to build and maintain one is often considerably higher than an equal amount of land is. However, if you're already building up for stacked vertical farm layers, putting your roof and sides on to control the environment doesn't cost much extra but gives huge rewards, so tend to almost always be included. A lot of the costs for vertical and controlled environment agriculture are likely to go down as we improve technology, and also proportionally down as we seek to get more food out of less land and land values rise. So too, the cost of food traditionally, especially for citizens in an urban area, is mostly not the cost to produce it, and more the cost of transportation and storage. And especially in the case of items prized for freshness, like herbs and some fruits and vegetables, Urban agriculture that cuts out the transportation and storage issues can get away with premium prices more viable for vertical agriculture. Now a lot of our examples of controlled environment agriculture, especially vertical farming, tend to rest their economics on taking advantage of discounts and freebies, something like building out of discarded shipping pallets or abandoned urban warehouses. I applaud any hobbyist or entrepreneur taking advantage of deals or recycling that way, but it does represent a false cost for upscaling you run out of free discards, and it makes it very tricky to really look at the future economics of vertical farming because so many of the known examples are of that sort. Similarly, it's not uncommon for advocates to credit big production with vertical farming in cases where that is more from the controlled environment aspects. It is not false, but it can be a touch misleading from a future expansion point of view because any scenario in which vertical farming has come to produce a large fraction of our food is one in which we either have hyper-energy abundance and or amazing automation, or it's in one we've already replaced opening a farming with domes and greenhouses over it all, in which case we're comparing the economics and productivity of vertical farming to that, not open-air farming. And we probably should start there because it does show how the costs contrast. 
Good agricultural land is not cheap, it can run several thousand dollars per acre, but that pales in comparison to the price of land in cities. We estimate that the total of urban land in the United States values at well over $25 trillion, and amounts to some roughly 50 million acres at over half a million dollars an acre. And that's all urban land, not metropolises let alone downtown Hong Kong, New York or London, where a single square meter of land costs more than a hectare of farmland. Incidentally, since I'll be switching back and forth between hectares and acres, meters and feet a lot in this episode, for quick mental approximation, a square meter is about 10.7 square feet, and a hectare is about 2.5 acres, or 4 hectares, 10 acres. A hectare is 10,000 square meters, or 100 by 100 meters, and an acre is about 4,000 square meters, or 43,560 square feet, and there are 640 acres to a square mile, and 100 hectares to a square kilometer. You do not need to memorize those, there is no quiz at the end, but I felt we should bring those numbers up to emphasize just how wild the cost differences are. Monaco, the world's most expensive land market, at over $5,000 a square foot, costs more than an entire acre of farmland does in my neck of the woods, indeed it's about 60,000 times more expensive. Out in the country, land is so cheap that virtually all the cost of the structure is building it and maintaining it. In a metropolis that flips around, the cost of the land and paying its mortgage and property taxes can dwarf the cost of even multi-story buildings, let alone some ultra-cheap area structures like barns and warehouses. We normally put the price of a commercial greenhouse at around $25 a square foot. So greenhousing in an entire acre would run around a million dollars, a hectare about 2.5 million, both about double the cost of average urban real estate, again not downtown metropolises where it could be several million. Obviously the land cost is trivial there for rural examples, and there are places you can still buy land for under a thousand acre from a combination of remoteness and barrenness, and greenhousing those places, like a region cold enough to be permafrosted, can suddenly change that land into prime agricultural producers, and yet the savings for building there, rather than on existing prime land, is trivial too, and possibly non-existent considering you're trying to build far from existing infrastructure too. On the flip side, sure we can find an abandoned warehouse in many a city and convert into vertical farming or a big greenhouse, but even for the purpose of freshness, we might be better off buying 100 acres of farmland and making that warehouse a top-notch supply and distribution center instead. This is a futurism channel though, so we're not interested in the economic viability of vertical farming or greenhousing today, we're interested in it down the road. Right now there's only 8 billion of us, and many do think the population will stabilize at about 9 or 10 billion. Personally I doubt that because the background thought on all of that is that having more folks than that, or even that many, uses up our resources. But as long as the cost of food is only a fraction of what a human produces overall, you can keep expanding, or in this case doing more with less land. And greenhouses, hydroponics, and vertical farming are all huge boosters of food per unit area. Indeed, enough that greenhouses are already marginally profitable in many cases, and they get relatively cheaper every year as we get better at engineering, producing, and assembling cheap but durable glass-like materials while simultaneously land costs rise. There's around a billion acres of farmland in the US, about two-fifths of the total land area, and even with existing technology we could easily feed the entire human population with just that space, though a lot of people couldn't afford to eat at that cost 
Indeed that same tech would easily allow new areas to be converted to farmland too, including flat out desert, because even a few centimeters of rain a year is enough for a greenhouse since water is mostly contained, and seawater can be economically converted to fresh water at that point too. It might seem insane to spend 10 million bucks building some ultra-durable acrylic greenhouse with multi-layered vertical farms and aquaponics and hydroponics inside designed to feed a thousand people, but if the improvements in technology lead to a planetary average GDP per capita of $100,000 a year, and you're all trying to feed 50 billion of us without knocking over every forest, suddenly that becomes economically viable. And in truth, or my opinion anyway, most of those aforementioned factors seem pretty plausible in the next few centuries. Now if the population does end up stabilizing for a time at around 9 to 10 billion, how much more controlled environment farming we see would depend mostly on overall improvements in material science and automation. We can produce food to feed hundreds of billions on this planet, but it's way easier and cheaper to feed our current levels on open-air farming of larger amounts of land. As an example, the typical 6-10 mil plastic used on most greenhouses is usually only pennies per square foot, and those can be made from biofuels so you can hypothetically greenhouse in land for about its normal rural cost, carbon neutral and sustainable, and it will be way more than twice as productive if you do, and there's a lot that could bring that down. Similarly, the cost for tall buildings is usually predicated on them being sturdy and safe as residences and office space, not as mostly for plants or robots and a few human inspectors. If agriculture shifts to a more robotic and controlled environment, because we've got our robots good enough to run most basic agriculture with human oversight, then vertical farming might be much more viable. Now there is a fundamental limit of sunlight, only so much comes down on a given area, and while you can intercept light destined for different chunks of ground by building tall and putting other bits of land in your shadow, taking their light, it isn't terribly likely that in most cases that would serve any practical purposes. So super tall vertical farming is really more the realm of volcologies running on fusion power or power satellites, see those episodes for discussion of that. Today we're still focused on the relatively near term, the 21st century and maybe the 22nd, and we're not really contemplating off-Earth agriculture here either, space-based or on other planets. Here we are talking about 10 to 20 levels of plants stacked up, possibly a bit more in an urban environment where you might borrow the sunlight falling on some other building nearby, like a warehouse or storage garage where they really aren't interested in windows anyway and you can install mirrors, or just leave the building in your vertical farm shadow. Now getting that light there offers a lot of options. You can build just to let the light come in, but you also have options for mirrors or even for growing plants up bundles of fiber optic cables connecting back to wherever the light source was, which could be kilometers away given how good fiber optics are carrying light. So too, while we're not focused on space options today, we often discuss power satellites and shades and mirrors as beneficial, and maybe even a necessary part of future civilization, even perhaps this century, and have some of that orbital infrastructure, handy for power generation and climate and weather control, devoted to beaming down light to some rooftop lenses for distribution to a vertical farming site, and this is definitely doable. However, let's take a look at current production to see the situations and challenges as they are now. As of currently, vertical farms of several stack layers run about twice the startup costs of greenhouses and are often running supplemental lighting for the plants which isn't necessarily costing extra as you can use that minimum tailored spectrum light for heat as a byproduct and plants like heat. 
I mention that specifically because people like to eat all year round, but precious little grows in the winter. And even heated greenhouses are limited in this role, whereas multi-layered vertical farms do a lot better at staying warm for less expenditure. One thing going for the vertical farming market is the total collapse in LED lighting costs. LEDs are not only stupidly more efficient at producing light than old incandescents or even fluorescents, they can also be tailored to photosynthetic spectrums. Indeed, they can be tailored not just to the frequencies plants tend to like, but the specific frequencies a specific crop likes. And like at that time, as how much and what kind of light a plant wants can vary. Seedlings need little light compared to their future plant, for instance. How much light of what wavelengths and heat and humidity for how long each day, and for a current time of day and a current time of year or maturation period, can all be controlled and production booms when you do, particularly if contrasted to the normal sunlight hitting a chunk of ground. Long term it won't just be LED lights either, we might see stuff like semi-transparent greenhouse glass that transmitted the photosynthetic frequencies through, for the plants, but reflected non-photosynthetic light down onto the solar power collectors or thermal heat mass in the greenhouse meant to keep it warm at night. This is a lot of what I mean when I say we have problems discussing vertical farming separate from controlled environment agriculture because the two tend to be innately intertwined. If you're building a structure to be climate controlled, you might as well take advantage of the multi-level trade of plants you can do in it. Even without supplemental lighting, just by being able to cut out the natural seasons, and thus having some plants growing in seedling phase, using little light, near the ones they're using more from being more mature, adds to productivity. Economically, fresh food that I can grow in the winter and put in a supermarket in a city on the same day can sell for a good premium, and the competition is better storage or cheaper rapid transport from further away. I want to emphasize that though, because we are getting much better at storing stuff in ways that prolong its freshness, and obviously we ship way faster than we used to. And we could see some weird hybrid innovations in that too. We have a long history of truck farms, but contrary to the implication, it has nothing to do with growing food on a truck or transporting to markets on trucks, it's just a perversion of the old French word trucker, meaning barter and exchange, in reference to a small market gardens of a handful of acres folks would bring produce into cities from. However, we could see that term become properly literal in a future of automated freight, fleets of trucks holding vertical farm produce could be operational, with one parking right outside someone's house to deliver produce that a robot just harvested from that truck 30 minutes after someone ordered it. It might even be carbon neutral from using its own exhaust for travel, and supplemental lighting for the CO2, water vapor, and heat the plants relish. You could get some weird scenarios with low-level AI in any economy, especially a post-scarcity or borderline post-scarcity economy, as is basically inevitable with such AI. Contemplate a civilization where most people's homes were semi-off-grid in terms of having in-house water and sewage recycling, and some small automated garden that grew its regular crop and where animal intelligent robo-trucks swung by to deliver orders for less used foods or a sudden need for extra quantity, tanked up off your sewage for a partial payment, and meandered off to their next delivery. Recycled shipping containers are currently a popular option for housing vertical farms, and I could well imagine skipping the recycled part so the farming was in shipping containers and the vehicles just picked them up when ready to deliver, possibly in a weird parallel to crabs changing shells. A bit of a tangent into the more of the sci-fi realm than science for a moment, but I could imagine civilizations having an almost human pet relation with such food trucks, or roaming fleets of entire wild stray trucks.
animal intelligent and poking wherever they could steal some sunlight and begging at doors for food scraps and waste and repairs in exchange for fresh herbs and greens. Like I said, you get some very weird scenarios in a civilization with low-level AI, especially if it's small enough to play at being cute and appealing to why we like kittens, puppies, and little kids. Anyway, vertical farming has to potentially compete with weird new innovations like that, and is a reminder that improvements in technologies in a different area can sink another area we expected to do well in the future. Though that example also raises some market for it, being able to convert rooftops, basements, or garages into home gardens. Automation makes that a lot more viable from both the overall increase to human wealth and the ease of maintaining a garden if you got robots doing most of the grunt work. It might seem like we're pessimistic on vertical farming in this episode, we are not, and indeed that sort of home vertical farming is something I can practically guarantee will explode in the next couple decades, that's hardly a niche market either. And neither is that rapid ability to get fresh food from farm to fork in mere hours, any crop any time of the year. If you want that, you either need climate controlled agriculture or amazingly good global transport and distribution, and if you do need climate controlled, then the conversion of vertical farming isn't much extra, indeed it's usually necessary to make it profitable, but we shouldn't ignore that the aforementioned amazingly good global transport and distribution option is probably also going to become a reality. Which one wins out, or if the two can simultaneously exist, is likely to be dependent on unpredictable factors. Tiny differences in cost of thus far undeveloped technologies could make the difference. So could international strife making food security a bigger concern. Heck, a lot of human history is an ongoing conflict not between neighboring realms, but the cities in those realms with the countryside that feeds them, and same as things like online shopping and 3D printing can lessen rural dependence on big factories and retail centers, vertical farming could lessen the feeling of food security for folks in cities from rural areas, a historically exposed jugular artery. If I were a cynic, I suppose I'd be worried those options might make conflicts between them and shifts to city-states more common in the absence of that shared interdependence. Thankfully, I am not. I should note though that while vertical farming offers the ability to cut down on travel time and distance for goods to urban areas, it still isn't likely to see truck farms, the traditional kind, adapt to vertical versions in the middle of downtown, just on the outskirts where land and building costs aren't too prohibitive. I mentioned earlier how the cost of urban agriculture can often be misleading because of how much is being done with discarded materials or abandoned buildings and land, but it is worth noting that there is likely to be a lot of that in any given city and the economic viability of any project is pretty holistic. If I can take over an abandoned old warehouse covered in graffiti and weeds and turn it into a small vertical truck farm, I can probably also get a small market and deli in there and maybe a grant from the city or a foundation aimed at helping restore that neighborhood and then sell the whole thing down the road when land and building prices rise nearby, due to my improvements. Again, that's a niche market approach, but hey, there's a lot of niche markets in a civilization of nearly 8 billion and rising, over half of whom live in cities. I would tend to bet that a vertical farm, especially one with transparent sides of a nicely insulated acrylic or polycarbonate, would tend to work as well as garden parks and green spaces at all the things those are touted for which is everything from actual medical health to psychological well-being, lower crime, higher property values, and more. So again, any costs for making them need to take factors like that into account, but at the same time would probably be of diminishing value as the number of them grew. Also, we should note that major use of vertical farming is likely to also be tied into not just hydroponics and aeroponics, since heavy trays of dirt come with their own problems, but also aquaponics, since it's such a good way to handle storage of water and heat 
and for that matter creation and recycling of nutrients. Cities need vast grids to handle their water and sewage use. If you could narrow that down so that the water and sewer recycling for any given neighborhood was in the basement of a couple of local vertical farms, all within walking distance and open to strolling through, you'd be cutting down the huge cost of water and sewer infrastructure in metropolitan regions, and in a way that's likely to be positive and appealing to many folks, and possibly profitable. It is also one possible way to reclaim abandoned underground tunnels and mine shafts, and ironically one approach to carbon sequestration back into some of those mine shafts. Vertical farming and controlled environment agriculture in general tends to be vastly superior in water use, fertilizer use, and problems with disease, contamination, and pesticides, so that's another aspect to put on the balance scale against the sheer price difference compared to open-air farming. They are also much easier to quarantine and thus are also safer for using GMO crops which might be invasive to an area but highly productive. Alright, so what's the takeaway? Will we see vertical farming in the future? Certainly, it is already in use, just principally in niche and premium markets, but it is growing, and as we grow ourselves, hoping to keep more people while hopefully not needing to make new farmland to feed them, I think we will see a big rise in vertical farming, so to speak. Somewhat surprisingly, given how important agriculture is to humanity, it tends to get under-mentioned in science fiction and only gets surface dips rather than deep dives as a topic. Probably one of the biggest exceptions to this is Farmer in the Sky by sci-fi grandmaster Robert Heinlein, which looks at a farming colony on Ganymede built to help feed an overcrowded Earth, and the journey of a young man out to join that colony. Farmer in the Sky is one of the roughly dozen books Heinlein wrote for Scribner as young adult sci-fi and is also counted as part of his future history series, so it is a very good gateway into one of science fiction's most fundamental and influential authors and it got a Retro Hugo Award in 2001, as the novel came out a couple years before the Hugo Awards began. Seventy years later, Heinlein's work still resonates with audiences, young and old, and I'm very happy to add him to our very short list of authors who have won our SFIA Audible Audiobook of the Month more than once. Uh, we gave it to him some years back for Starship Troopers which was ironically rejected from the Scripner series, We've been doing the audiobook of the month for six years now and the other repeat winners are Isaac Asimov, Larry Niven, Alastair Reynolds, and Arthur C. Clarke, so he's in good company, and each of those authors has a huge binge-worthy catalog of novels available from Audible. I would like to go ahead and thank Audible too, they are our very first sponsor for the show, going on six years, and I've been a customer of theirs for almost thrice that now. Hopefully you're getting to do some traveling to see friends and family this holiday season, and if so, audiobooks are a great companion on long call, plane, and train rides, as well as exercise bike rides for working off the holiday calories. And Audible is now offering 60% off their first three months of membership, so it is a great time to join, or if you are already a member, to give it to someone as a gift. Audible also has a lot more than just audiobooks now, like their Plus Catalog, which gives you free access to a huge collection of podcasts, Audible Originals, Guided Fitness, Meditation, Sleep Tracks, and more. As always, Audible members get one free premium credit a month to use for all those new bestsellers or classics like Farmer in the Sky, and you get that member discount on additional purchases. But it's awesome having free access to all those podcasts and shows for streaming and download, and it is definitely my favorite new feature they've added. 
To give them a try and get 60% off the first 3 months, just visit audible.com slash Isaac or text Isaac to 500-500. Alright, next week we'll be examining the notion of intergalactic colonization with a twist, as we try to see how a lone ship or nomadic fleet might escape a hostile galaxy and survive as a civilization. Then next Sunday, the day after Christmas, I hope you'll join Sarah and I for our last monthly livestream Q&A of the year at 4pm Eastern. We'll then finish out the month and year with a look at the challenges we'll be facing in the next 100 years, then we will explode into 2022 with a look at using nuclear bombs to propel spaceships, after that we will visit our most popular series, Alien Civilizations and Civilizations at the End of Time. First for a look at hibernating alien civilizations that might be waiting till nearly the end of time, then for a look at the Big Rip, the cosmological model that ends the universe early and by being shredded, and we will ask how civilizations might manage that, or manage to survive that. Now if you want to make sure you get notified when those episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to hit the like button and share it with others. If you'd like to help support future episodes, you can donate to us on Patreon or our website IsaacArthur.net, and Patreon and our website are linked in the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums where you get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week!